everyone, welcome back to Sustainability Speaks. I'm your host, Saskia. On today's podcast, we are joined by Jessica and Bion, who are here to discuss some of the work they are doing in Singapore. For a bit of background, Singapore is one of the world's greenest cities and it's reimagining what a city can be in its green plan 2030. Today, we're going to talk about Edible Garden City, Singapore's 30 by 30 goals and Mandai Nature. So before we go into all of that, are you two happy to introduce yourself? Hey everyone, my name is Jessica. I'm from Mandai Nature. And just very quickly, what I do in Mandai Nature is I, I focus on a lot of the bird programs that we support, bird conservation programs we support in Singapore and Southeast Asia. I'm also working on tackling the illegal wildlife trade, but I think more recently looking at ecotourism, but especially uh, subset of ecotourism, which is conservation tourism and how tourism can benefit the preservation of species, while ecos- ecosystems and spaces, but also local communities that coexist in those spaces. Um, thank you, Jessica. Hi, my name is Bjorn. Um, I'm from Edible Garden City. We are a urban farming social enterprise. This is our 10th year of um, a- a- existence. And within that 10 years, we have built 260 edible gardens and herb gardens and urban farms uh, in Singapore. And a lot of the work we do is to um, really engage um, citizens um, and the public on food sustainability topics, food system issues, and, and encourage them to grow their own food um, at home as well. So that's a little bit about myself and the organization. Fantastic. Thank you both for that. Beyond, can you tell us more about Edible Garden City, please? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, um, this is our 10th year. Um, we we are very glad that we're still around. Um, and um, I think the initial idea was that, um, that Singapore as a very um, small city state has very, it's quite land stress in, in many sense. Um, you know, we um, do not have enough space for a large tract of agriculture uh, production um, and, and one of the challenges that we have been facing is um, the over-reliance on imports um, for our food supply. Uh, today, Singapore imports 90% of our food from uh, 170 countries. And of course, that number keeps going up um, as the food uh, system and food supply chain uh, becomes about a bit more challenging as uh, uh, geopolitical challenges come up. Um, and and with that simple kind of um, hope that we could um, become more self-sustainable, we started Edible Garden City um, uh, with, a, with an idea of really converting underutilized spaces into food production spaces for the community. And through this process, also really um, sort of bring up topics like food sovereignty, uh, food equity, um, and food justice uh, within our small city state. Hopefully, you know, to encourage everyone to participate in this food production journey. So we are 40 urban farmers um, with very diverse backgrounds. Some are from marketing professionals, financial professionals, uh, educators, and, and growers, and also adults with uh, special needs uh, as part of our team uh, and together we, we work together to try and uh, change the food landscape in Singapore. So the food that you grow, where does this go? Does this go to consumers? Do, do you sell this in um, like shops? 
how does this go into the food system? So we, we have um, a few, um, I guess, verticals. Um, we call it one, one of them is we grow and supply to restaurants. So we, we do supply to uh, close to 100 restaurants in Singapore. Um, and we have a community supported agriculture program where um, send subscribers uh, a box of vegetables uh, on a weekly basis. Uh, a lot of these um, kind of models were, they are not new. Um, so a lot of them were adapted from um, other, other countries as well. Um, but our, our goal is always to really relook at the supply chain. How do we um, shorten the supply chain uh, and have that direct connection between the farmers and the consumers? Uh, so, for example, um, people that subscribe to the box, they come down to the farm uh, every week to, to collect the box. And, you know, <clears throat> there's a bit of banter going on between um, the farmers and, and, the, and the consumers. Um, we work very closely with the restaurants and the chefs, uh, so they understand um, the challenges sometimes that we face, and we, can, we, we have to tell them that, sorry, there's no flowers today, no edible flowers today because of the massive rain that we had yesterday. So it builds that, that, that relationship between the customers um, and the farmers, uh, the direct link, um, which, is, which is so, so hard to forge today in, in this very complex food supply chain uh, where supermarkets uh, and, and food distributors are the uh, main facing to, between the farmers and the consumers. It sounds like you really built a community. Do you find that this has had positive physical and mental benefits to citizens? Um, well, definitely. I think the, the early days was really about converting as many of these un underutilized spaces into food production spaces. Um, over time, we, we actually saw um, that it was not really the produce that was coming up. It was really the people that were coming together. Every space that we converted, every space that we activated, uh, like-minded people came, they hung out, they volunteered, they did some work, they sat down, they talked about food system challenges, and then they um, team up together to, to then um, start a project on their own or a new enterprise or social enterprise. So, so urban farms as a place um, for um, a, a, as a as a platform um, to um, for for community to come together uh, have been have been really realized in the last ten years. Um, but through the work that we 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 do um, in the healthcare space, um, where we have been running programs. Um, for on our farm where participants come um, and, and do certain activities. Um, so whether it's seed sowing, harvesting, um, and, and doing it together, um, the scientific studies have shown that um, through engaging with nature or through engaging with activities related around agriculture or horticulture, um, there is actually a significant impact on uh, stress markers within the body. Uh, and, and this, um, there's quite a number of journal articles, uh, medical journal articles um, being written uh, on, on this subject. Uh, so we, are, we, are we will continue to pursue this, um, this angle uh, where we want to convert a lot of our urban farms um, into urban care farms. So, so there, there's a more diversified um, objective for these um, spaces where we can provide care as well to the community, not just food. Do you have any of the projects yeah, 
So, so there are a couple of projects um, happening right now, and, and one of that is um, working with the National Silver Academy, um, where, where the elderly, so retirees, um, can actually come to the farm uh, to, to spend a day and do some activities on the farm. And, and these, are then, um, these are then programs that we are able to, to track um, progress of the elderly that, that do come and um, hopefully when they do come back, we can uh, really see an improvement in their, in their mental um, wellness and, and state of mind. Um, of course, we, we're continuing to um, work with many schools um, and I'm really hoping to scale that um, so that the education sector really brings in sustainability as part of their curriculum. Uh, and we continue to explore, uh, adapt, um, you know, native indigenous plants um, in Singapore and, and really encourage people um, uh, or Singaporeans to eat more of that. Um, today, we, we all demand food uh, with a very global mindset. Um, there is so much diversity in, in, our, um, in our region um, and vegetables that used to be eaten uh, are not really eaten today. Um, so vegetables such as the sayomanis, which is um, translated sweet vegetable, or the ulum raja, which is uh, translated in, from Malay, is uh, the king of salads. Uh, so, so trying to bring this back um, so that it's more trendy, so that more people eat it, because the way that these um, plants are, are farmed or grown um, is, is very different. Uh, you, you don't need to protect it under uh, greenhouse plastics. You don't need to cool the environment. They, they grow naturally in, in the garden, and they produce uh, quite a lot of uh, uh, bulk uh, in, in bulk uh, and they also beautify the space because they, they are flowering plants and perennial plants uh, so so we continue to to kind of push these messages and projects out so that um, to change the mindsets of Singaporeans to to allow them to choose um, differently as well so moving on can you tell us about Singapore's 30 by 30 goal the Singapore 30 by 30 goal was a very ambitious target set by um, the Ministry of Sustainability and Environment um, to move Singapore from a 10% food production um, uh, capacity to a 30% uh, food production capacity uh, within a short 10 years period. Um, so, so very ambitious, but I, I think it, it's, it's um, highly possible that we could, we could hit that. Um, but it really depends in the next few years um, how some of these pieces are, are, of the puzzle are put together. Um, and, and the focus for, for Singapore, of course, we, we are not that ambitious to want to grow all the food stuff, you know, like um, rice, um, which is quite difficult because of the limited land. So um, what, what they have, um, the government has really done is to look at um, specific food groups. So you have uh, protein, which are from the eggs, um, fish, uh, so lots of fish farms, um, and vegetables. So these three groups uh, were, were chosen for the focus. Um, and, and this then includes the replanning of uh, the, um, the core farming area in Limchukang and Kranji um, to accommodate new uh, farms, um, that are more focused on productivity, uh, but also opened up the whole community aspect uh, within the urban spaces. Uh, so um, in, the, in the last few years, you have, we have seen uh, lots of rooftop car parks, which are um, highly 
underutilized, being converted into urban farms. Uh, so, so this has really spurred on the, um, the progress for the urban farming industry in Singapore. Uh, and um, we, might, we might hit that 30 by 30, I hope, in the next eight years. Yeah, I hope so. It sounds like nature reclaiming the city. I can imagine it looks so beautiful as well. It, it does. I think Singapore has um, always been known as a very green um, uh, and a garden city. Um, I think the, the word play in our, uh, in our brand or company, um, Edible Garden City, uh, was, was done on that, on that thought, right? Why, why just have ornamental plants? Why don't we turn everything into something useful? Um, but also has the ability to beautify um, the space. Uh, and, and that is sort of the core uh, motivation. Uh, and, and these food forests that we, we put into the city um, create a very dense, um, colorful space uh, that is accommodating to nature, to insects, to birds, and, and to humans as well. Uh, so we share the food as well with uh, with the pests and the and the insects and the birds. Uh, so it creates a, a very biodiverse environment. On the topic of birds, Jessica, what is Mandai Nature and how does this fit in with Singapore's green plan? Great question. Um, so Mandai Nature, in a nutshell, uh, we're a conservation organization with species at its core and our, and our core focal area is Southeast Asia, of which Singapore is, is part of. Maybe to just give you some backdrop of this part of the world um, and beyond that sort of indicate a little bit, um, it's a highly biodiverse region. Four of the 25 known biodiversity hotspots are found in Southeast Asia and Singapore is part of the hotspot uh, Sundaland. So highly biodiverse, but also highly threatened. Um, apart from having a lot of people here in this region, the, the population growth and economic development is also putting pressure on species through land clearing, amongst other things, as well as over-exploitation um, for human consumption and needs. And just to give an indication of, of the levels of threat to this region, with about 270 species, Southeast Asian species, that are critically endangered on the IUCN red list, which is a, is a global conservation listing that indicates how threatened uh, species is. And 270 species are one, is, uh, are one step away from extinction in this part of the world. Out of the 270 species, 80% are endemic, which means they're found nowhere else in the world except in Southeast Asia. So losing this 80% would mean losing them completely because they're only found here. And so really our focus is how do we preserve species? Um, and I suppose that the, the connection to the Singapore Green Plan um, and Bjorn also alluded to it is um, while he talked about planting native species for human consumption, uh, by encouraging the planting of native species in Singapore, you also encourage the use of this green spaces by local wildlife. And you know there are two animals here in Singapore that are whose populations are quite stable. So, so they're found out elsewhere in Southeast Asia, but they're highly threatened and they're in decline. But these two species, because of the increase in greening uh, and creating a green spaces that benefit people, but also animals, we've got what we think are stronghold populations for these two animals. And they are the, the critically endangered Sunda pangolin. Uh, you, many of you may have heard that. It's threatened by the legal wildlife trade. Uh, and the second species is a straw-headed bobo or bird um, that's also critically endangered, threatened by the illegal and unsustainable wildlife trade. And because of the greening um, plan in Singapore and the creating of green spaces, 
these species actually persist and are not only stable, but also increasing in population compared to where, you know, everywhere else in the region where they're in decline. So I, I suppose Mandai Nature's role in regards regard to Green Plan is really partnering with all these civil society groups and, and other community groups in not only enhancing spaces in Singapore, in Singapore for people, but also where possible for biodiversity. And if anyone listens to the podcast, wonder what that scream was. It is actually a bird. Jessica has them in the room, which is very fitting for the recording. Yes, indeed. I always have to be in character. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about conservation tourism now, what are the nine core tenants of this? Maybe before I talk about this in detail, uh, I mentioned earlier, Mandai Nature is very much focused on species yeah. and, and habitats at, at, at its core because you can't protect animals without protecting the places they live in. But we also recognize that people coexist in these spaces that uh, are wild, right? Where wild species exist, but also there's this wild spaces and habitats. And so conservation tourism um, is really a, a, a theme or a topic that addresses the preservation of species um, and, and wild spaces, but also by doing so co-benefiting people, local communities, indigenous groups that survive in these spaces. And I'm speaking very broadly in a Southeast Asian context, but this can also be applied to a Singaporean context. Um, so just to elaborate and you know quickly on the nine core tenants to conservation tourism, the first one is really defining the conservation storyline. So meaning if I was to carry out a, a conservation tourism program, what is my start point? What are the gaps and needs I'm trying to address? And how do I take this all the way to addressing it? So what is the gap or challenge or problem? And what's the solution? Is conservation tourism the solution to addressing it? And if it is, what are the conservation gains? Right? How do I plan um, and face these gains? Because they don't all happen overnight and they, they don't all happen at one time. It's a long, it's really a long haul, it's a long-term process. So what are the step-by-step -step, you know, um, bits and pieces I, I need to do and carry out to achieve that? And then you need to clearly define and deliver on conservation goals. So essentially, what are gains? How do I achieve them through goals and objectives? And how do I go about delivering them? And who are the right people right, that I need to help me deliver on these items? Because ultimately, conservation tourism should benefit uh, species and wild spaces, but also people in the process. The fourth one is investing in financial viability because uh, conservation tourism ultimately is a business-themed program. So how do I make it sustainable? And as I mentioned before, beyond just protecting species and habitats, the fifth um, tenant is minimizing footprint. So if I was to develop a program beyond my core impact being habitat and species protection, by developing the program, how do I minimize my footprint? Um, the sixth one is building community partnerships. I mentioned this earlier, you cannot save species and habitats without working with people. So who are your local community groups that you need to work with to achieve this ultimate goal of conservation tourism, you know, delivering on conservation, but also community needs. The seventh one is maximizing supply chain linkages. So this is really important because tourism involves, you know, both domestic international groups and parties. So how do I, you know, connect these um, uh, supply chains with maybe financial or product base and, and really maximize and really bring this out into the marketplace. So people actually, you know, it's, it's visible, it's optical, and it's, it's easy for people to find in, in this global um, space. The eighth one is educating. So obviously um, a key part of tourism, uh, conservation tourism is when your visitors do visit your, uh, your conservation tourism site. 
um, can you also take the opportunity to educate them in on the impact, but also how they are delivering as a tourist visiting that site positively in that environment. And the last one is, I mentioned this before, and this is linked to supply chain. How do you optimize the conservation brand, the marketing, the sales channel? Because it's, it's beyond just a conservation tourism location. You are working with people that may come from elsewhere in the world, as well as domestically. So these are the core, the nine core tenants that we identified um, in that recent white paper we published on conservation tourism in Southeast Asia. How do you think that you can integrate conservation into developments? How are you connecting wildlife with urban cities or how do you think maybe other cities could do this as well? Great question. Um, and this, I would use the Singapore as, as a model or as, as an answer to this question. Um, so I think um, beyond just, I mean, integrating conservation to development is a very broad term. I think um, to more accurately, accurately put it, it's, it's really integrating conservation principles into development, so ultimately to become action, um, conservation action on the ground. And this can happen in many levels. I think firstly, is working with people, is at a level of people and communities. In urban cities like Singapore, where, you know, I mean, we're a city in nature, so we are full of green spaces that encourage biodiversity to coexist with us. Um, and as I mentioned previously, we've got highly threatened species found here that are happily coexisting with us. But quite often, um, while the animals are happy here, the people living here may not be too happy um, because you get, you know, while we're, because we're encroaching into natural environments here, that means wildlife and people are coming closer and closer together. And, you know, when you put species like macaques, which are a type of monkeys found in Singapore, uh, wild boars and some other animals, some people may not be too keen to have these animals in their private spaces or in their, you know, their housing estates. And that quite often le leads to conflict, right? We call this um, human wildlife conflict, even though I don't like the word conflict, but that's how it's perceived, you know, in a really uh, highly dense um, city like Singapore, where we have lots of people, but we're also lots of wildlife and lots of, lots of animals running around. So I think what's really important and at the first level of integrating conservation into development is really working with people and promoting the idea of coexistence. How do we, how do we become okay with you know, a Honda flying on your balcony? How are we okay with a civet, which is a, a, something like a, wild, a local wild cat? Um, how, how are we okay? Can we be okay with the civet climbing on my roofs, right? Maybe messing up my house a little bit. How do we convert people you know, in urban cities to be okay with wildlife in their, in their space? Um, I think secondly, it's, it's of course where possible to protect our natural heritage and enhance our, our natural spaces. So Singapore is an urban jungle. We've got lots of uh, urban spaces, we've got lots of wild spaces. How do we connect all the wild spaces together? And this is through you know, building ecological corridors, green, you know, green corridors that can connect one green space to the other and allow animals to transverse the urban landscape. It could also be, you know, and, and beyond already mentioned this previously, enhancing um, the habitat of these species by planting feeding plants, you know, uh, flowering or fruiting trees, but also trees that are nesting sites for animals. Um, roads can become more uh, wildlife friendly, for example, building eco -bridge bridges across major roads so animals don't have to cross the road, they can use an eco bridge to cross without getting impacted by cars. Um, you could set up you know, where there's land clearing and there's not enough nest sites beyond just planting, perhaps putting up artificial nest boxes or bed boxes or bee boxes in some of these locations to encourage wildlife to, to exist and coexist with people. So I think 
it's really two levels. It's really the human level and changing mindsets and behavior and actually physically by implementing and putting in wildlife friendly infrastructure into you know, urban spaces. Yeah, I could see how some people wouldn't be happy. Like, I feel like if there was a nice bird on my balcony, it wouldn't bother me. But maybe if there was a snake in my kitchen, I might be a little bit more upset by that. You spoke about green corridors. What's a green corridor? So a green corridor is essentially um, a green road, so to speak, that connects green spaces together. So, for example, in Singapore, we've got uh, nature reserves and, and you know, national parks right, scattered across the landscape. As a, if, it, if they're left alone, they're all isolated. So the animals that are stuck in all these green spaces and are not able to move in between each other. So how do you connect these green spaces? Is by creating and planting. So this is really um, a type of forest restoration, but a very specific to connecting green spaces together. So replanting you know, a, a, a green road, so to speak, right? With different species of um, trees and shrubs that will encourage movement of animals in between urban landscapes. How does this fit in with Singapore's plans and what are the challenges and opportunities of Singapore becoming a sustainable tourism destination? So as, as mentioned previously, Singapore's you know, heading in a green direction and that's beyond uh, being sustainable in terms of you know, having our own food sources and just sustainability in whole. Um, tourism is a big sector in Singapore and um, tourism should also head in the same direction and that is becoming green. I think currently, um, and maybe I'll just touch on the challenges first and I'll, I'll touch on just a couple of points. I think for Singapore, which is in a way a reflection of the region, um, currently there is, there's a need um, for a wider ado adoption of sustainable practices in, in tourism in Singapore. And um, this is beyond just, you know, oh, you know, don't use more than one plastic bottle, right? But it should be tourism that also has impact at the end point. How do I positively impact uh, nature while I'm a tourist here? And this is also not just for domestic tourists, Singaporeans, right? Um, moving towards green and positive impact, but also for international tourists that visit Singapore. How, how do they come here and have a positive impact in Singapore, but also in Southeast Asia? So I think there's currently um, a lack of awareness and a lack of adoption of sustainable practices, not just environmentally, but also in an impact sense um, in Singapore, and not just in the industry, but also in the consumers. So just to put it in context, if I was to go somewhere in Southeast Asia to travel and I want to go on an ecotourism tour, the average tourist would pick the cheapest option. Um, even though, in, and, and that, that tour is pitched as being eco-tourism, but quite often the cheapest tour may not be the most environmentally friendly. So how do we educate all these tour operators? Regardless of skill, they may be small or large operators, but making them adopt, right? Um, you know, green in their, in their you know, business plan or, or their programming. There's also uh, a need to define um, impact, I think. So it's beyond just, you know, so if I was a tourist joining a tour, um, I want to know what my impact is. And there should be a way for tour operators, you know, some sort of framework for them to tell, tell the story, right? If you come on this tour, this is the process it takes, right? This is how you're contributing to, um, you know, ecotourism or conservation tourism. So currently that's still not very clear. So I think um, some sort of bench, standardized benchmarking or some sort of framework um, guiding, right, uh, tour operators, but also consumers on, on impact will be really, really helpful. And that's really currently um, 
that while it's there, it could be improved. And, and that leads me to the opportunities. So with, with all these um, challenges in mind, what it means is um, we can start somewhere, right? We can actually start looking at how do we educate um, tourism operators, but also um, tourism partakers, right? Um, guests and visitors that are going to um, come into or, or are visiting and are going on ecotourism tour. And, and by doing so, um, ultimately making Singapore more than just a sustainable um, country, but also a country that truly is an eco destination, uh, a city in nature, because everything we do, we ensure, even in tourism operations, we ensure we minimize disturbance onto a natural environment, but also at the same time, um, that that program results in positive impact. So I think um, that education, creating those um, framework and, you know, programs and processes is the opportunities and the space to work in. And Singapore is really a good window into Southeast Asia. It's, it's, a, it's a place where nature coexists with us. It's everywhere around us. So it's, it's a very safe space for visitors to, if, who are visiting Southeast Asia for the first time to come and visit Singapore first, perhaps before you know, traveling elsewhere um, in the region. I think the challenges like in most countries is um, to ensure that, you know, we, we ensure that's not greenwash, right? Um, a, a lot of the efforts um, made by establishments uh, could be very surface level um, and they do not go deep enough to look at, um, you know, the broader systems of um, how on, on ecotourism or, or eco-travel. Um, so then the content or the experience that comes out from, from that um, is, is very surface level and, and doesn't go deep enough. I think the, the opportunity really um, for, for Singapore is to really um, explore a more participative tourism uh, approach where, um, for example, um, for for people to, to come to Singapore to really participate in the course uh, and stay maybe for a longer period uh, so that they could be part of a movement. Um, so this, this example um, has been well established um, in, in, in the global space where uh, people go to farms and they, they volunteer on the farms for two weeks as part of their uh, travel uh, route, you know, um, through the woofing network. Uh, so, so um, experiences like that would allow for more immersive experience uh, and, and also for them to participate. Uh, I think that will uh, establish really Singapore as a, um, as a strong platform um, for the Southeast Asian region uh, to really get, get people experiencing um, Singapore because uh, Singapore is uh, 101 Singapore 101 to Southeast Asia, right? So, so once they, they're done Singapore, uh, when going into Borneo or, or Sarawak, uh, they are already accommodate, um, quite comfortable with the climate, with the humidity and with the uh, flora and fauna. Uh, and, and so they can go even deeper um, when they travel into other Southeast Asia region. Uh, so these are the two points yeah, I'd like to share. Yeah, that sounds really great. Thank you both for joining us. This has been a really interesting discussion and something quite different for the podcast. So I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it just as much as I enjoyed recording it. Thank you. Thanks for having us.